The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Dina Gilio Whitaker. She is a descendant of the Colville Confederated Tribes and a renowned scholar, educator, journalist, and author in American Indian Studies. She co-authored, along with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, the popular book, All the Real Indians Died Off, and 20 Other Myths About Native Americans. And she's also an adjunct professor of American Indian Studies at California State University at San Marcos. As the policy director and senior research associate at the Center for World Indigenous Studies, Ms. Gilio Whitaker has worked with indigenous governments in the U.S. and beyond for many years helping them formulate policy strategies and work cooperatively with federal and state governments and in other collaborative organizational partnerships. Today, we'll be discussing her most recent book, As Long as Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonialization to Standing Rock, in which she applies her expertise in environmental justice to create a foundation for thinking through what environmental justice policy means, specifically in Indian country. It is the only book of its kind, and it's a primer for governments and organizations of all kinds who are engaging in environmental justice work with indigenous peoples. Ms. Gillio Whitaker speaks nationally at universities and conferences on topics related to American Indians, including environmental justice. She works to correct history and describes the realities of Indian country and the relations between Native nations and an oppressive federal legal system. Welcome, Dina. Uh, welcome. Thank you. And coming to you from the traditional and unceded homelands of the Ahashiman Nation in Southern California. Thank you for saying that. I think this is a way of communicating that I think all of us should adopt in that we recognize our elders and we recognize the land on which we stand and work and profit from in many cases. So thank you for that. I want to take a deep dive into the native food ways and the beautiful way you explain in the book about how food systems are indeed ecological systems. But first, I think we need to talk about some of the misinformed historical narratives that we've been taught about Native peoples, and also help us with language. What are the most respectful words we should be using to describe the Indigenous people of North America and beyond? That's a really pretty complicated question, or at least a question with complicated answer. And I would say that there's not one right or, you know, right way. There's certainly wrong ways to describe indigenous peoples, but there's not necessarily one right way. And it really comes down to who you're talking about and, and what nation individuals might be part of. So it's always most accurate to describe people's nations and their names for themselves. We have these terms called American Indian and Native American but they were framed by 
people who came from other places, which was a way of othering the indigenous inhabitants. And so we're sort of stuck with those. But they're signifiers. And when you say American Indian and Native American, for example, people know that you're talking about somebody that is a part of those original populations. But in general, Native people prefer to be referred to by their own Native names. In this case, you know, mine is as a descendant of the Colville Confederated Tribes in the Sinaixt Band. But the thing is, somebody asked me, what is your ethnicity or your heritage? And I said, Colville, most people wouldn't know what I was talking about. And the same would be true for 570 other tribes in the federal system. So you can see how complicated that gets. Right. And I think it's so important for those of us wanting to correct injustices to use the language that is not offensive in our work. And that's really what led me to that question. It's like, I don't want to offend you or others who may be listening. Yeah, and that's much appreciated. And generally, you know, you risk not offending somebody. But if somebody has something to say, I think it's fair to say this, that they'll just tell you that a better term is what, like if you're calling somebody a Sioux Indian, they might say, well, the better term is to use Lakota or Dakota or Nakota. Like these are our terms for ourselves. Sioux is really not the preferred term. But again, that's a personal choice in general, unless you're talking about the Sioux Nation. I mean, the Standing Rock, for example, Standing Rock Sioux Nation is really their title for themselves. So, again, I mean, the complexity of all of this. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to take us some time to get it all right to make corrections, but that's what this interview is all about. And so when we talk about some of the narratives that I was given growing up, you know, in my history books from my high school, there was so much that was missing. And I've learned so much from your book in terms of, my goodness, there needs to be so many corrections made. What corrections are at the forefront of your work that you want our listeners to know about this cultural narrative that those of us in the United States grew up with in most of the European-centric kinds of high schools? Right. Well, I would point to that first book that Roxanne and I wrote together, All the Real Indians Died Off and 20 Other Myths About Native Americans. And it's in the title that one of the master narratives is that there really are no such things as Indians anymore. And those that are here and that claim are somehow inauthentic because they don't match some fantasized notion about who Indians are. So understanding that even though there have been these profoundly violent processes of genocide that has has animated American history since the beginning of colonization of Europeans 500 years ago, even though that actually happened, we still survived. And so those of us who are of American Indian descent now are actually the survivors of these genocidal processes, and that our populations are rebounding and have been rebounding since the early 20th century. So, yeah, so we're still here. We still have legal relationships with the federal government based on treaties and other kinds of legal agreements, an entire legal system that structures that relationship. 
and relationships with other, you know, like local and state governments as well. So it's that we're still here, and even though we may have lost a lot of our cultures as a result of these violent processes, we still retain a lot as well in terms of languages, for example, or even foodways would be a really good example. A lot of that cultural knowledge is still alive and resilient, and in all over the continent you'll see Native communities revitalizing those practices and teaching the young. So, yeah, we're still alive and we're vibrant and rebounding. Yeah, I think that's so critically important, and I'm so glad to know this. Although I have looked at the statistics prior to our interview about COVID-19 and the disproportionate toll that COVID-19 has taken on Native populations. And once again, we see people in this country who are receiving just the best care possible and those who are falling through the cracks. And such a shame to think that with the disproportionate loss of Native American people, we will lose more of that cultural and indigenous foodway knowledge. Well, yeah, I mean, it's certainly psychologically devastating because no one has more experience on this continent with deadly diseases than Native Americans and also biological warfare and other kinds of warfare that attacked our food systems for sure. So, yeah, I mean, to be confronted with another devastating biological agent is certainly scary, and it triggers, like, all the intergenerational or what we call historic trauma that we all carry with us. And it's also fair to say that COVID is not as deadly as smallpox was or, or polio or any number of other infectious diseases that we were faced with. So, And that's not to downplay the severity also of the way that it's playing out in many tribal communities. So, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, getting back to a re-embracing of what could have been lost cultural foodways, I want to take that into a conversation about how you have beautifully connected foodways to ecological ways. And to me, just having a bit of knowledge about biology, it would seem to be common sense that we would want to protect or recognize how our environment is so intricately connected to our food health and our public health. And yet it seems that in the white man's world, and perhaps it was because of Christianity that led to this idea that it was man's ability or man could dominate his environment without any consequence to the quality of the food. Yeah, I mean, and it's uh, there's also analysis that have, uh, and I can't think of the name of the person who I heard this from, but, um, and I'm sure that there's more than one scholar who's made this analysis um, about the the heavy reliance on agriculture that Europeans brought with them as a way of avoiding death. There's a whole, you know, and less of like the fear of death. But that said, you know, Native societies had developed agricultural traditions thousands of years before Europeans had gotten. I mean, there's, you know, evidence that Native societies in North and South America had 
agriculture beginning 8,000 years ago. That's a long time ago. So, and, and that's one of the things also, you know, one of the myths that, going back to that question, that Native people were, you know, nomadic wanderers, that they were hunters and gatherers, like, you know, the, these terms that we're so accustomed to hearing that implicitly denote culturally inferior, uncivilized people who are on some, on the road to evolution at which white European civilization is the pinnacle. And so we have all this coded language that signals that. And so it's really incorrect to talk about American Indians as being hunters and gatherers, especially when the vast majority of Native people had some form of agriculture that they practiced. And even those that didn't practice agriculture engaged in some form of what has been called wildland horticulture, where they actively managed landscapes in, for various purposes, including the increased production of food in the wild. I mean, this was really common in California, where I'm at now, and also in Washington State, for example, in the Coast Salish area, they were known for those kinds of food practices, too. In other places, for example, in the Midwest, where you, like where the Lakota people are, the Plains and Southern and Northern Plains people, where that term really gets recycled of hunting and gathering cultures, people that were, you know, horse-bound cultures like buffalo people, that term gets deployed about them, but they also had practices that we would call the seasonal round, where they, they, and this all happens within very bounded territories. They're not just wandering aimlessly over the land to some new place all the time. It's uh, a very seasonal, it's, it's got ancient continuity. People had their summer grounds and they had their winter grounds, and it was always about where the food sources were most abundant and where the weather would be the least the least detrimental as well. So so yeah, I mean in native societies everything is holistic. It's about the way that the lifestyles were really constructed in large part around food and and that's always about connection to land and connection to certain ecosystems and it's out of those realities and those physical environments that native identity comes from and that's something that it's really hard for non-native people to understand that from the very beginning when when Europeans first came here they didn't understand the people that they were dealing with and and how all of these things constructed their lives and you know and let's face it it was it was advantageous to them to create some pretty horrible narratives in order to justify the taking this violent taking of the land. So all of that has really structures is at the foundation of American the American country as we know it and you know and and that's what we're always battling to overcome. Mm. We need to take one break because we're halfway through. I just want to remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Dina Julio Whitaker. 
she is a renowned scholar, educator, journalist, and author of the book we are discussing today, which is titled As Long as Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock. I want to talk about environmental justice during the second half because I think it's important for us to understand environmental justice through an indigenous lens. Can you enlighten us about that? Sure. Well, it, that's also a really big conversation, and and it has to do with how we understand justice as a framework in this larger con- this other this kind of sub conversation about what environmental justice is. This is a conversation. It's a discourse, but it also includes policy and law and praxis or activism and theory, like academic theory. And the way that environmental justice as all of these things has been framed over the last few decades, beginning really in the early 1980s, has been framed in a way that hinges on this concept called environmental racism. That is that communities of color, ethnic minority communities are targeted for really toxic kinds of processes as a racist, you know, as a result of their race and their relative lack of power. So that's been established. It's pretty well established in law and policy, and it's very relevant for those communities, you know, like black communities and Latinx communities, you know, these ethnic minority communities. But my argument is that it's not totally accurate for indigenous people to frame it in terms of environmental racism. There is a point at which it's got some utility, but to limit the conversation to racism is to really limit the scope of who Native people are and what their relationship to the United States is as a result of being who they are as nations. So when the United States was formed and they encountered Native people, they encountered Native nations, um, and that's what the treaties were all about. And then this process of colonization is about disempowering them, and it's about you know genocide and erasure and disempowerment, all of these processes. And not, but not only that, but the fact that Native people had this much, much different relationship to land than Europeans did. And that Europeans came to this land with a very extractive kind of approach to it. It's always it, it based on property, it's based on ownership, it's based on these very exploitative kinds of relationship to the land, which is fundamentally opposite of Native relationships to land, as I was going back to what I was saying before about identity, Native identity connected to land. And so in environmental justice discourse, unless that all of those things are taken into account, these legal relationships of Indians as nations, and also these very different worldviews relative to land, unless all of that's taken into account, then anything that we call environmental justice is not going to be sufficient and will continue to do harm. There will not be any hope for actual justice in the American legal system unless all of these other things are taken into account. Mm-hmm. So that's the argument that the, that the book essentially makes. 
just the chapter on food as medicine, water in life is so illuminating in terms of our deep relationships to the land and how important it is. And you you describe 2,000 varieties of food sources that Native Americans were using and protecting their health. And the white man comes in, takes over the land, and gives them, whittles them down to beef and lard and flour and sugar, and we see the devastation in their health as a result. To me, the question is, how do Native people deal with the anger of the genocide, the loss of their water, the loss of seeds? I know the fight for rice, the preservation of the Native rice and the Native salmon in different parts of the country. How do we move forward with such loss and trauma from that loss? That's like a million-dollar question, and I think that there are different answers to that question depending on who you ask, and I think it's multi-layered, but it always begins with an honest conversation, I think, and and education. Education's a huge part of this. Like Until you start educating the American population in general about the actual history of this country and stop whitewashing it with all of these triumphalist American narratives that celebrate from sort of like the conqueror's perspective that are celebratory tomes about American greatness, like we hear so much of these days, mm-hmm. and which there is a push to go back to, then we cannot have an honest conversation unless there is an accountability for these histories. And, you know, I think the battle over education that we're seeing right now is a direct backlash to that because beginning, you know, I would say in the 1960s with the civil rights movement, we have seen an evolution in the education systems. And just like we've seen an evolution in so many other things, and I'll go so far as to say is that the current historical moment that we are in with Trumpism and the kinds of political battles that we're seeing playing out is is a direct result of that. It's the continuation of the backlash to the rights that were gained in that time. And so the processes, the, the way that education has evolved in the last few decades, you know, we've 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 come we've we've come a certain distance. And is it enough? No, I don't think it is. But we're getting there. And for example, we have here in California a something that was just passed an ethnic studies bill that that makes a requirement in higher education that students getting out of the, if they're going through the California State University system. They have to have an ethnic studies class, at least one of them, in order to graduate. And, you know, that's a good thing. This is one approach to correcting those those histories and educating the populace. But it needs to happen beginning at the earliest stages. And, you know, we have in other states, for example, in Washington State and in um, Oregon now and also in Montana, they have those mandates to include the teaching of tribal sovereignty 
so they're mandated to teach about Native peoples, not just as disappeared peoples from the past, but as living as living societies with sovereignty and governments that are very alive. So, you know, I mean, I, I personally think that it really comes down to education, but it also has to come into policy, too. But once you... Once you you know properly educate a populace, then they're empowered to get into the highest places in government and other institutions of power to make better decisions that have better outcomes for Native people. So it's all connected to each other. Exactly. And I couldn't agree more about the need to get it into earlier education. I think when children are especially susceptible and naturally engaged in their natural environment. They love it. They want to be in nature. What a perfect time to teach that kind of respect so that when we are presented with this idea that we have superiority over the natural world, that we're not a part of it, that I think the person would naturally question that. And I think that that's a really important step forward. But then that Go ahead, I'm yeah, sorry. And that's why we get we get a society, a technologically heavy society that's brought us that whose technology has brought us to the brink of self destruction. That's what you get in a society that, that believes it's superior to nature. Exactly. Well, your book is extremely rich with so much information and I think that as we face catastrophic life ending things such as diseases and viruses and climate change, now is the time for us to grasp onto indigenous wisdom and insights and education. And I know that you teach traditional ecological knowledge, that you are bringing people to elders who can teach this kind of information. We just have a minute left, unfortunately. What do you want to leave our listeners with? I want to leave your listeners with this question, and the question, this is the same question that I pose to my students in the course that I teach on traditional ecological knowledge, and it's the way that I begin the class, and I ask them a question, and I have them write an essay, or just a short paragraph, not even an essay, just a short paragraph answering the question, what is your relationship to land and place and to the indigenous peoples of that place? And this is undoubtedly a question you've never been asked before and you've never maybe had to think about, but this is a beginning place to make the connection that you as an American citizen are living on lands that are, that indigenous people still have claim to, whether you understand that or know that or not. And what does it mean to live on, to be a citizen of a country that was gotten through these profoundly violent processes and to which they didn't consent. How do we think about accountability for that? Mm-hmm. And that's a difficult conversation and, and it's not meant to be easy, but but it's a real conversation and I think it's a fair question. I agree. And I want to thank you for giving us a homework assignment. That's very important. And I also want to remind our listeners that in an interview that you did, you mentioned the fact that you know, Native people have been on the land for 15,000 plus years which is a really good sign that you understand sustainability at its core. I am going to provide a link to your beautiful blog and website where people can learn more about these issues and so much more. 
And we must close, unfortunately, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hamelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Dina Julio Whitaker. She is a renowned scholar, educator, journalist, and author of the book that we were just touching on, As Long as the Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Appreciate being heard.